born-again believers, our eschatology, our belief about the end times, depends on our hermeneutics. I'm throwing around big words this morning. Um, eschatology, again, uh, the, the, the part of theology that deals with what's coming, okay? And then hermeneutics is really the branch of knowledge that deals with how do we rightly interpret the Bible. So we get eschatology from the Greek word eschaton, which means an age or a period of time. There's a coming age, uh, an age of being with the Lord for a thousand years. And so uh, it's the study of last things. It's the study of the last days. And, and the texts that we're going to be working through over the coming weeks deal heavily with this topic of eschatology. All the way back to Matthew 5, if you go back, Jesus clearly says, look, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And in the church, as long as it's been an entity in the world, there are those who take it, take, take the Bible literally for what it says, and then there are those who allegorize the texts. And there's a, there's a pretty big spec spectrum in between those two camps. Now, as, as your pastor, um, I promise not to set aside good hermeneutics, good practices when it comes to interpreting the Bible and what it says. Um, I, I, I want, especially the text that we're even going to look at today, that can be really confusing. But I share that point with you uh, because if you, if you exist in the camp that takes the Bible more literally, the more likely you will be a premillennialist when it comes to your eschatology. And what that means is you're, you're going to be in the camp that's more prone to think Jesus is coming at any time for his bride. Okay? And, and, I, and I'm, I'm using some big theological terms you might not be familiar with. Let, let, me, just, let me define these again. Just I, I want to make sure we're clear. Hermeneutics deals with interpretation, especially of the Bible or literary texts. Eschatology is the study of the end times. Uh, the word eschaton means age. And then uh, you'll hear me say this this morning a few times, premillennialism. The millennium is a thousand years, right? Um, remember your, your math, your algebra classes? You had to memorize DECA and... Yeah, please, somebody save me. Okay, okay, thank you. Good. Okay. And so that's, that's, that's where this comes from. It's uh, an actual, literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth at some point future. And we see it in Revelation 20, verses 2 to 7, that the millennial kingdom is specifically said to be, guess, a thousand years. It's crazy. It's almost like a thousand years means a thousand years. Um, when Christ returns to the earth, he's going to establish himself as the king in Jerusalem and sit on the throne of David. That goes all the way back to Luke chapter 1. And that's appropriate because the Davidic covenant promised Israel a king from David's line who would reign forever and ever. And, and it would give the nation rest from their enemies. That's all the way back in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. So, so what I'm saying to you this morning, just kind of setting this up, is that the softer your hermeneutic, the more you're likely to allegorize the text of Scripture. 
Well, it doesn't really mean what it says. It, it means some of this other thing that happened like 500 years ago, right? Okay, no, no, that's, that's soft hermeneutics. Um, and you're more likely to be amillennial. And so ah is always, the, A is always the negation at the beginning of a word in Latin. And so it's, there's no actual millennial reign of Christ. Amillennialism doesn't believe in an actual reign of Christ on the earth. So, so you need to think through your hermeneutics. You need to think through your means of interpretation, right? Um, but it gets worse because 95% of systematic the- theologies that you could buy off the shelf today, um, the future of Israel as a nation is noticeably missing from the table of contents. They don't even deal with it. It's puzzling since this topic constitutes five-sixths of the Bible. And yet we, we just largely ignore it. And it's especially odd since all of us as Gentiles derive our benefits from the covenant God made with Abraham back in Genesis 15 when he walked that blood path. And, and it was going to be Abraham, Abram at the time and God walking the blood path, cutting covenant together, but God put him to sleep because it's unilateral. It's not incumbent on Abraham and his descendants. It's incumbent upon the Lord. So God calls that piece of land over there in the Middle East that is his own land, and he leases it to the nation of Israel. And no other nation on earth has a right to it. And we're not simply talking about the land that Israel currently occupies, which is just a tiny little sliver of what God granted to them. I don't know if you knew that. It's just a tiny little piece. The term Levant, which is, which is largely used for that area of the Middle East, um, that term <coughs> appears in English in 1497. Originally, it meant the east or the Mediterranean lands east of Italy. And it's borrowed from the French Levant, which means rising, referring to the sun rising in the east. And I believe that the culmination of God's promises to Israel are in process now with all this happening in the world today and especially there in the Middle East. It's, it's the hub of everything that God is doing. And, and so when it comes to born-again Christians and the kingdom of God, the reality is it's here and now. The kingdom is here. It's now, but in a totally other sense, it's, it's yet to come. Like we exist in the kingdom of God as born-again Christians, and yet there's going to be a, a time when we are with the Lord in the fullness of the kingdom in a way that, gosh, I, I just don't think we can even really conceptualize. It's just beyond our imagination. So um, when we speak of kingdoms, we are in fact speaking about political issues. And I realize that's taboo in the culture where one's generally encouraged to avoid subjects of religion and politics. But uh, as Americans, we have disdain for taboos. So we talk about them anyway. uh, And we even argue about them openly with family on holidays. It's great. And um, so just Stop and think about our current form of government, okay? Even in its bloated, mutated, bureaucratic form, a once great republic. But we weren't made for a republic. We weren't made for that kind of government. We were made for a kingdom. And Jesus uses the term kingdom very, very frequently to to, to just instill that in our hearts. We were made for a kingdom. It might surprise you, and it might make you uncomfortable, 
to learn that you and I were not made for a democratic republic. We were made for a theocracy. We were made for Jesus, who is our king. And the question is whether or not his kingdom is already established and present on the earth or whether it's still yet to come. So let's see if we can just strike the biblical balance of those two things this morning. What are the arguments for kingdom now? You heard that phrase, kingdom now, in a biblical sense? Well, every believer on earth is living in two conflicting kingdoms. We, we belong to the light, but we live on the earth in the midst of a great and growing darkness. So we're, we're in two kingdoms. And uh, we see this played out at the arrest and trial of Jesus in John 18 and 19, because Jesus stood trial before a man named Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And it was, and it's the clashing of these two kingdoms, a spiritual, eternal kingdom that's coming in glory, and then this physical, temporal kingdom that is eventually going to collapse. So one takeaway is that human institutions, even the ones that are, are ordained by God, can come into conflict with the things of the Spirit. And if you want another example, just look at the Roman Catholic Church. Um, claiming to be of God and in the Spirit, but very much in the flesh. Um, I, I won't go any deeper than that. Uh, do your own homework. But the takeaway is every born-again believer has dual citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and here or wherever you are on the planet right? You have dual citizenship. Paul puts it like this, Ephesians 3. He says, uh, verses 1 to 13, Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. Now, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made, was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are actually fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, the, that grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery that's been hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, here's, the, here's, where, here's where this is going. He says, so, so that through the church us. <laughs> wow. Think about this, okay? So that through the church, I lost my place. There it is. Okay, verse, verse, nine, verse 10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I'm asking you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering, which is actually for your glory. So Paul tells us here that the mystery is the church. 
So, so our citizenship is foremost in heaven, but we're still awaiting the Savior when he comes. He has come to deliver us from our sins, but he's coming again to deliver us from everything. And when he comes, he will transform us in glory. We're going to get new bodies. Amen. Yeah, I know. That wasn't a thing in my 20s. Like, Who cares? You know, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fit. I can run. Not now. There's no cartilage in these knees. I can't wait. New body. Um, and, and, so, and so now we come to the actual texts this morning, okay? You ready? Matthew 24, 1 to 14. So Jesus is leaving the temple. He's, he's left the temple. He's going away. His disciples come to point out all the buildings of the temple because they're just wowed about the temple. And he answered them, verse 2, you see all these things, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's talking about Titus Vespasian and the Roman legion and what's coming in the future at that point. And as they sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when are these things going to be? What's the sign of your coming and the ending of the age? And Jesus answered them, see to it that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, and the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness being increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So there's Matthew. Listen to what Mark says. Mark uh, 13, 1 to 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see all these great buildings? There will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. And you will bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand as to what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, it's the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father, his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. 
and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. One more passage here. Luke 21, 5 to 19. Parallel passage, okay? Verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of these things that are about to take place? And, he, and they asked him, Teacher, when will these things, what's going to happen? He said, uh, excuse me, verse 8, See that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. The time is at hand. Don't go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, don't be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not come at once. And then he said to them, nation is going to rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. Man, can you just imagine standing there hearing this litany of what's coming going, oh, I thought we were going to the kingdom already. That's pretty demoralizing, right? There will be uh, terrors and great signs from heaven, Verse 12, but before all this and before that happens, they're going to lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So settle it before in your minds, not to uh, meditate beforehand for an answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So again, this, is, this account is in Luke, just like the other two. But I want you to just notice, notice uh, some, some very slight differences here that we need to take into account before we go any further Look again at Luke 12, 12. Before, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. Uh, namesake. He says, before all these things, before all the, the signs of the ending of the age, right? They're going to persecute you. And he's speaking to his Jewish disciples. And so they're representing the Jews at that point. So we need to understand the context that the Jews are going to be persecuted. We see that in 70 AD with Titus Vespasian coming into Jerusalem, destroying the temple, destroying the city, right? So when we, we will come to Luke 21 next Sunday, uh, verses 20 to 24, if the Lord tarries, I, I'd be just as happy if we went to see him personally. Uh, and, and there we will see Titus and his son Vespasian conquering Judea. Uh, from that point of their conquering Judea and, and destroying the temple, uh, Titus goes back to Rome. Many Christians uh, took the opportunity to get out of the area at that point. Uh, many Jews stayed, and approximately 1.1 million of them died in the siege of Jerusalem when he came back. This was the beginning of the fulfillment of Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled according to Jesus. It has not ended yet. It's still going. 
uh, but it will end at the coming of Christ. And if you don't believe me, just look at the news and the factions warring against Israel. Guess what? They're all Gentiles. There's no Jews fighting Israel. They're all Gentiles. So again, that time is not fulfilled, even though Israel is a nation and Jerusalem belongs to the Jews. But the Gentiles still trample it underfoot. So Arabs are currently, uh, just, just so you know, in the Middle East, they're, they're currently the largest ethnic minority in Israel, and they comprise a hybrid community of Israeli citizens. So there are Arabs who are Israeli citizens with a heritage of Palestinian citizenship, and they're all, they all kind of have mixed religions. Um, and let me just hasten to say that there are, there, there are no Palestinians. Did you know that? There are no Palestinians. There is no such designation or of ethnicity as a Palestinian. Um, many non-Jews living in and around Israel have adopted the name of Israel's ancient enemy. But few Christians in the West know or understand that it's only an appropriation to gain access and proximity for the sake of making war on Israel. Palestinian is Philistine. There's never been a nation called by the name Palestine since Old Testament times. It's, it's Philistia. Palestine is Latin for Philistine, Israel's ancient enemy. And it was the Romans who changed the name of the land from Israel to Palestina when they marched through and took over. And it was an insult they renamed Israel after the Israel's ancient enemy. Okay? So just understand this reality. There's no Palestinian people because there's no Palestinians. There's no Philistines. Okay? Now back to our regularly scheduled sermon. Um, Jesus was leaving the temple and going away, and, and we see the foretelling of the destruction of the temple connected to their re the Jews' rejection of him as Messiah. Uh, again, Luke 21 is not a parallel account, as some wrongly point out. Uh, if, if you read Luke's account, you'll note they're still in the temple complex. But in Matthew, they're outside on the Mount of Olives that same day in the evening, uh, seeking clarification. So it's called the Olivet Discourse. So you need to just be aware of some of those sneaky little things. Or it looks like it's the same passage again, but it's not. And, and those who put together the harmony of the Gospels that we're reading from, they missed that detail but I'm pointing it out to you so you don't make the same mistake. In Luke 21, the questions that are being asked are these. When are these things going to happen? The destruction of the temple, right? When's that going to happen? The, the, the disciples want to know, what's the sign of your coming? And they want to know, what will be the signs of the ending of the age and the establishment of the kingdom? This, this millennial thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, what's, when's that coming? And Jesus describes the beginning of birth pangs. And he doesn't really answer their questions. Keep, keep in mind two, two important things. Ma Matthew here is a Levite, right? He's writing primarily to a Jewish audience about the Jewish Messiah. Also, the disciples would not have expected this delay in the coming kingdom, which they assumed was about to be inaugurated immediately. They're, they're kind of freaking out and like, what, what is, what? What's, we thought this was about to happen now. So you look at Luke 21, 9 to 14, 
Like you see that, that paragraph begins with prophecies specific to the apostles and their ministry in the establishing of the church. And then that, that section of text broadens in scope to the, to the gospel going to all the nations. And so we'll, we'll save the rest of that passage for next Sunday, God willing, but uh, I'm going to keep pushing all of us to read the text carefully. By failing to read it carefully, many have been led astray into other, other understandings that led them somewhere else. But the, the, here's the point. The kingdom's coming. The kingdom is coming. <coughs> and you can rest assured in the certainty that Jesus' actual physical kingdom will come upon the earth. Now, I don't know about where you, where you grew up or what kind of church you grew up in, if you grew up in church at all. But I grew up, <laughs> you'll find this funny, United Methodist Church as a kid um, before it went hard left. <laughs> and they openly said every Sunday, thy kingdom come. That phrase was said every Sunday. And it's taken from what we call the Lord's Prayer, right? In Matthew 6, in Luke 11. And I'll read the King Jimmy version um, that I heard growing up every Sunday, right? Um, King James says, Our Father who art in heaven. And for the longest time, I thought his name was Art. I just didn't, as a kid, I'm like, who's Art? Um, Our Father who is Art, who, who art in heaven, who is in heaven, hallowed, holy be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We tend to focus on the daily bread and having our debts forgiven. But the first thing that is asked in the prayer is the coming of Christ's kingdom. And that needs to be our priority. And, and it will, and it is, and it's going to be a thousand-year rule and reign of Christ on the earth, a literal thousand-year reign. But here's the really sad part about this. Nine out of ten churches don't believe this doctrine at all. They don't believe it. But nothing in heaven and earth is more certain than the truth that God's kingdom is coming. Luke 19, 11 and 12 it says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom was going to appear, appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Do you remember we, we were in this passage several weeks ago? See, Jesus has gone into heaven and he's receiving a kingdom and he's going to return. He's coming back. Christ's return is to rule the planet earth and for the life of me, can't understand why, except for Satan gets in there and muddles the waters. But it's a, it's a really controversial doctrine in many churches. It shouldn't be. There are 1,845 references to it in the Old Testament. 17 books in the Old Testament give it prominence. There are 318 references to, to that event happening in the New Testament in 216 chapters. And 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament give prominence to the return of Christ to rule on the earth. Scripture clearly describes a thousand-year reign of Christ, a literal kingdom of God coming upon the earth. And again, 
some Christians see this as a coming reality and others don't see it. They don't see it as even important or being a real future event. They're going to be shocked. Now, follow me here. I want, I want to show you why understanding this is so important to the balance of kingdom now, kingdom not yet. Because in the church, we either go full like kingdoms right now and not, nothing else is going to come after that or kingdom yet. And we're not, we're not living like we're in the kingdom now, right? So there's this finding this balance here, okay? Unfulfilled prophecy points to this inevitable reality. In Luke 1, 32 to 33, we read Gabriel's prophecy about uh, the child that's coming to Mary. He will sit on David's throne and rule over the house of Jacob. Now, if you know your Bible, then you know that these two things have never happened. They still haven't happened. So the problem of not taking the Bible seriously about these issues goes far beyond the issue of Gabriel's announcement to Mary. These prophecies are tied to the promises God repeatedly confirms to the nation of Israel. It's, it's for the nation of Israel. And, and then we're the beneficiaries, like just because just we love them and we love him. So if you, if you put your finger at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, and then you you put your other, uh, other hand, your other finger in Acts 2. The entire portion between your fingers is all about Israel, not the church. Do you understand? It, we got to be careful how we read our Bibles. It's not about you. You need to get the context right. From, from, from all the way back, all the way back there, to, to, from Genesis 12 to Acts 2, is all about Israel. Contained in that section of the Bible, there are at least four major covenants between God and Israel, listen, that are unconditional and eternal in nature. At least four. And this presses the point about God keeping his promises. And this is why the idea that the church has replaced Israel in the covenants of God is so very bad. They call it replacement theology. I appreciate the candor of what they call it. That's exactly what it is. It's replacing Israel with the church. But God didn't replace Israel with the church. The, the covenant is reiterated with the births of Isaac and Jacob, despite their disobedience. And perhaps the covenant most relevant to our topic here is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. I, I'm, I'm very cognizant. I'm giving you a ton of information this morning, and it, it feels like drinking from the fire, fire hydrant, right? But I, I, I have references from these passages if you want them. Just email me. I'll give you my notes. You can, you can take the rest of the week and, um, or get them off the church center app. But God promised David a royal dynasty. He promised him a dynasty and an eternal throne and a political kingdom. And this is even emphasized to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 17. It's, concern, it's, it's confirmed by an oath in the Psalms. It can't, it can't possibly be applied to the church. And, and it's this throne that's confirmed to Mary by Gabriel about the birth of her child. So this is the future throne that's recognized by the first church council in Acts 15. So get this. There are 300 specific prophecies about the first coming, the advent. There are eight times as many about the second coming. Eight times. What do you do with that? It's a done deal. Eight times as many prophecies. Those who hold this, 
This, this, okay, let's talk about the problem. I mentioned this a little bit ago. We'll, we'll, we'll move through this quickly. Ah, millennialism, right? We said the A negates and millennium is a thousand years. So ah, millennialism is the belief that there's no literal thousand year reign of Christ. Okay. So when we talk about that, those who hold that view typically allegorize scripture. It doesn't mean what it actually says. As the late Dr. Chuck Missler used to say, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess to anything, right? So such is the case with amillennialism. The Old Testament is replete with the promises of a messianic rule on the earth, which the Jews were expecting and hoping for during the Roman era. And, and this is precisely why they didn't recognize Messiah when he came. And this is the destiny here of Israel wrapped up in this issue all the way back in Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 33, because the angel said, hey, Mary, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your, in your womb, you're going to bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of David. David, the king of Israel, the best king that Israel had. He will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Gabriel announced that Mary's child will sit on David's throne, being the best king of Israel. The problem is David's throne didn't exist in that day. They were ruled by Rome. And the ruling king was an Edomite. And I'm talking about Herod. Jesus never sat on an earthly throne, and I challenge anyone to contest that he did. He never sat on an earthly throne at any point in his ministry. So where's Jesus right now? He's on his father's throne. He's seated at the right hand of the father. He still has not sat upon his throne, reigning and ruling the nations with a rod of iron for a thousand years. So to dismiss or explain that away, the millennium, is a huge problem. To dismiss this reality is to impugn the character of God. You're actually calling him a liar. So eschatology has this first big break over the issue of the millennium. Some say that we're already in it. That's pretty easy to debunk. Where is Satan during the thousand years? According to the word of God. Well, we're told that he's bound up and chained in a pit, right? And then at the end of the thousand years, he's let loose to deceive the nations. See, he can't be chained in a pit and deceiving the nations. That, that's a long chain. So at this time, the millennium is going to be a period of testing for the inhabitants of the earth while Satan is bound. We'll, we'll get into that another day. We're not there yet on the timeline, but the biblical principles will help us stay on script and keep us from confusion. Let the church be the church. We're not Israel. The church is not a polit political action committee. <laughs> We don't wage war the way that the world wages war. We are to pray, especially for those in authority. We are to make the gospel known to all. This is our warfare. That's how we make war. We take the gospel. We are to teach and preach what is true and righteous and just and call people to repentance. So, so what does our Bible say about all the social issues in our day? He said, the Bible says, teach and rebuke. Do it in love. Don't skirt the hard issues. Don't skirt around it. Deal with it. And, and then hear this one. And I might step on some toes. I tend to be very conservative politically. But, but aligning the church with political parties and certain issues 
robs the church of its power. The church has been given in part to model to the world what it looks like to follow Jesus and be in relationship with God. And then everything else necessarily flows from that reality. The problem is how far our culture has sunk. And from the culture's point of view, we can't say anything morally that would go against their view. We can't say abortion is wrong, even if we're heavily invested in showing teen moms how to take care of their babies. And even then, we're not allowed to, we're not allowed to come against abortion. See, according to the culture, we can't say transgenderism is wrong, even if we're serving that community and loving them. We still won't be received if any criticism comes out of our mouth at all. So what do we do? Do we just give up? Do we, do we give up on reaching the people around us? Of course we don't. Of course not. We're not working to, see, to be seen by men, by people. Whatever we do, we're doing it as unto the Lord. And that's the only way to keep our integrity intact for the sake of God and for the sake of those who are watching. The world's going to judge us, but they always judge with a wrong standard. They judge based on their selves on themselves, right? God judges based on his perfect righteousness. So born again, disciples of Jesus, we must operate with spiritual integrity. Listen, the goal, the goal and the mission of the church is not to save America. And on that point, the Titanic has already hit the iceberg, folks. Um, it's, it's simply a matter of how fast we're sinking and, and how many we can fit in the lifeboats. Uh, there was a man named Chuck Colson, uh, who was President Richard Nixon's White House counsel and hatchet man, you, some of you will remember he served time in a federal prison camp for Watergate-related crimes. After his incarceration, Chuck felt led by God to honor a promise he made to his fellow prisoners and their families. That promise that he made grew into Prison Fellowship, the world's largest family of prison ministries. And it was Chuck Colson who said that the greatest danger in our country is wrapping the cross in the flag. Because when people become disenfranchised with the flag, they will inevitably dismiss the cross along with it. Never expect the government to achieve or to do what the church can do and should do. It's, it's by the power of the spirit, not by the power of the flesh. If you want to see societal change, cultural transformation, we need to get out on the streets and share Christ with the lost. That's, that's as simple as it gets. We need to love people with the gospel and help come alongside them to help them. The government doesn't have the power to change the culture, but the church does by the gospel. So let me, let me just wrap this up. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, 13 to 18. Paul again. <coughs> we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who are already died physically that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and then rose again, even so through Christ, God's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have physically died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left at the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. And the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then, 
I don't know how fast that's going to go, how long we get to stand there in awe watching that. He says, but then we who are alive, we who are left, we're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord always. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I can't wait. Listen, I'm not looking for the second coming. That's later. That's the conclusion of the great tribulation. I'm excitedly anticipating the sound of the shofar and the trumpet of God. I, I, I want to hear the words out of Revelation 4. Come up here and the church will be raptured and we'll be with him always. So saints, listen to me. Keep looking up. Keep longing for your consummation. Keep making the gospel known to the lost. Let's finish the mission. Join me in prayer. Lord, we want to be found faithful in your sight with all that you've given to us to steward and all that you called us to do. And Lord, we know that the mission is not over because we're still here. And until we're not here, we want to be faithful with what you've called us to do, faithful with what you've given us to steward. Lord, help us to open our mouths and, and the gospel come out by the power of your spirit that we might bring many into the kingdom by your grace. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being your ambassadors in the earth. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this Davidic covenant promised Israel a king from David's line who's going to rule forever. And Jesus has gone into heaven. He's receiving that kingdom, and then he's going to return. When he comes the second time, we will know for certain that we weren't made for a republic. We were made for a kingdom, and he will rule and reign. He will sit on David's throne. He will rule over the house of Jacob and the whole earth. And until he comes, we must operate with spiritual integrity and we must share the gospel with all who will hear us. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.